Radio Gag, the Gays Against Guns show. Prepare to gag, yeah. Greetings, gaggers, and welcome to Radio Gag, the Gays Against Guns show. Radio Gag is your update on how to end the horror that is the American gun violence epidemic. I am your host, Ty Kersley. On our show, Is Florida a Place for Us? Fellow gagger J.W. Walker and I review the current state of Florida with our guest, Brandon Wolf, Pulse nightclub survivor and activist, to discuss his new book, A Place for Us, a memoir. And in GVP news, if you thought Craigslist was gross, now there's one for guns. But first, our in memoriam for Dr. Gwendolyn LaVon Riddick. In memoriam. In remembrance of Gwendolyn LaVon Riddick, July 30th, 2023, Eden, North Carolina. Dr. Gwendolyn LaVon Riddick was found beside her car with numerous gunshot wounds and was pronounced dead at the hospital. A suspect was arrested in her murder and what police believe was domestic violence and the culmination of a custody dispute. Police have charged the father of her toddler-aged son with first-degree murder. Their three-year-old son witnessed the crime but was not physically injured. Riddick joined UNC Women's Health in Eden in October 2021. A friend from residency had recommended the medical practice and the small Rockingham County city as ideal for Riddick. She treated around 25 patients daily and delivered around 10 babies per month. I wanted to be in a place where I could give back to the community, Riddick said in a 2022 interview. I wanted to be involved with teenagers when it comes to mentoring on a level outside of the office. So that was what attracted me to Eden. Born in Gates County in the northeastern part of the state, Riddick grew up the middle child of six in a home where money was scarce, but achievement was celebrated and support from her parents was abundant. My parents were very supportive of me, Riddick said. They wanted to help me with my daughter so that I could go on and do what I wanted to do in life as far as going to college, Riddick said. They pushed me to stay in school and to do well. My parents were able to help me raise my daughter while I went to college, said Riddick, who began her studies on a full scholarship at UNC Chapel Hill, but transferred to East Carolina University in Greenville so she could easily commute home every weekend to be with her little girl. Anaya would ultimately follow in her mom's footsteps as a pre-med biology major. Riddick graduated early from ECU in December 2004 and attended medical school at Virginia College of Osteopathic Medicine in Blacksburg. She worked at several locations in Virginia, including Newport News, before her move to Eden. She also had a second child with her partner, the man now charged in her death. Dr. Riddick was an extraordinary woman who made a difference in the lives of everyone she touched, UNC Health shared. We will remember her and the legacy of resilience and compassion she leaves behind. Our thoughts are with her family and loved ones. We will continue to provide support for our teammates and patients in the days to come. Domestic violence is a deep and serious problem across Rockingham County that Riddick's death sharply underscores, said a top administrator at Help, Inc., a full-service agency in Wentworth that links victims of domestic abuse with the justice system, counselors, shelters, and other resources. In preparation for Domestic Violence Awareness Month in October, we had just talked to the City of Eden about organizing a special walk at Freedom Park, said Help Inc.'s Director of Operations, Chrissy Griffin. Since 2002, counting Riddick's death, Rockingham County has seen 11 domestic abuse-related homicides or suicides. 
Dr. Gwendolyn LaVon Riddick, we remember you. This is Sarah Germain Lilly reporting for Radio Gag. According to the New York Times, the Biden administration and the Federal Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms, or ATF, have a possibility of regulating online arms and disarming a popular online source of crime guns known as arms list. The bipartisan Safer Communities Act passed last summer included a provision requiring anyone who makes a profit from selling a gun to apply to be federally licensed and conduct background checks. The Biden administration issued an executive order on this in March of 2023, with a track for implementation by 2024. The ATF is currently negotiating with the administration on particulars such as how many gun sales would qualify the seller to be regulated under this law. Currently, only dealers who made their primary source of income from sales were subject to the ATF regulation. The penalty for failing to register currently is a $250,000 fine or up to five years in prison. Why is it necessary to regulate these types of arms sales? In Missouri, October 2022, a 19-year-old graduate of Central Visual and Performing Arts High School entered with his newly purchased AR-15 and shouted, you're all going to die. He killed a student and a teacher before he was killed by police after barricading himself in a classroom. This mentally disturbed young man had tried to purchase guns before, but since his parents had had him involuntarily committed to a mental institution, which is picked up by federally regulated background checks, he was denied. After previous rejection, he was able to get the rifle he used on arms list. Other sales of crime guns have been linked to the arms list site and the online marketplace has been the subject of lawsuits brought by survivors. Guns can easily be purchased there by criminals who fail the background checks of licensed dealers. A recent study in the Annals of Internal Medicine showed that 22% of gun owners self-reported that they had purchased a gun online. If legislators can use this ruling to curb online sales, we could begin to see a downturn in gun crimes and possibly suicides and begin to reduce deaths and injuries from firearms in our communities. In the first part of our interview, we discuss Brandon Wolf's new book, A Place for Us, a memoir, and how the Pulse nightclub survivor turned to activism with the Drew Project. All right, first we are going to welcome our guest, Brandon Wolf. Hey, good to be here. Thank you so much. I'm excited for our listeners to find out more about your book. It's A Place for Us, a memoir. And that came out just this month. So I know you've had signings and, and you've been able to meet people. So what's that experience been like? Yeah, it's been incredible, honestly. The book came out July 1st um, after a month-long preview period for Amazon Prime members. So I got a little bit of a sense of what the reaction was going to be. But, you know, I think anytime you put your first work into the world, um, there's a sense of trepidation. There's anxiety about how we received. Will anybody read it at all? And I, I think those things are are made more intense when you're a part of marginalized communities, right? Being a black queer person in America, I was really not sure that anyone would read it. And if they did, how they would respond to it. Um, but the the reaction has been overwhelming. It's uh, almost immediately, it was an Amazon bestseller 
Uh, it has been in the hands of thousands of people. And, and just for me, the, the most important part of this process has been helping young people see themselves in a journey that's similar to theirs and helping others who may not be, you know, who may not have the same lived experiences as me, helping them see other people in a new light for perhaps the first time. And so reading all of the reviews and comments um, that tell me people are getting those experiences out of it, that makes every bit of it worth it. Oh, well, congratulations, that's amazing. Thank you. Um, I think, yeah, the partnership you're bringing up um, is, is part of your relationship with youth now. Um, is a significant part with the Drew Project. How does that tie together with either meeting with people, the fans, or just putting the book together itself? You know, in the wake of the Pulse tragedy, um, I experienced a lot of fear around the loss of the people that I love the most. And in part, you know, I was afraid that I would forget them. And so I did what people do. I saved old voicemails to try to remember how they sounded when they answered the phone. I saved old t-shirts to try to remember how they smelled when they walked in the door. But I was also really afraid that the world would never get to know my best friends, Drew and Juan. I was afraid that they would just be names on a wall somewhere, you know, on, on America's very long list of gun violence victims. And I wanted to be a part of helping create a legacy for them so that they would matter, not just because of how they died, but because of how they lived. And so we launched the Drew Project in the summer of 2016 in July of that year. And our focus was on trying to empower LGBTQ and allied young people to create spaces of belonging in schools and then give them access to higher education so they can go off and chase their dreams and change the world. Um, that has defined a lot of the work that I've done over the last seven plus years because changing policy is great and it must be done. Changing politicians is very important. That must be done too. But the, the work of changing hearts and minds of changing the future, changing the next generation's perspective on being kind to one another, on diversity, equity, and inclusion, um, and on addressing gun violence, that work is probably the hardest work and the most important work we have to do. So um, the Drew Project has been a huge source of pride. We've authored the country's most comprehensive Gay-Straight Alliance student curriculum guidebook. Uh, we've given over $150,000 in college scholarships in honor of my best friend. And ultimately, the best part is just watching these young people thrive. I hope they, they get something out of the book, too, but I'm really honored to be able to do that work to empower them every single day. Can you measure your change along the way uh, as forward and backward, or is it, um, are you sometimes lost as well in this, this fight? Yeah, I think it's, it's a little of both at the same time, right? Progress and backlash. Um, Florida's in trouble. And I think, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to be sharing breaking news when I say that Florida is in trouble, but it's true. Things are, are really challenging here on the ground for people of color, for, you know, people who have the capacity to get pregnant, for LGBTQ people, the list goes on. Any marginalized community, anybody who's in need of support from those around them is in serious trouble. And it breaks my heart because I moved to Florida in 2008. 15 years ago, I moved to Barack Obama's Florida. And that is not the same as Ron DeSantis's Florida. The way in which the governor has careened us off a right-wing cliff in service to his flailing presidential ambitions is not only deeply embarrassing, but it is incredibly dangerous for those communities who are most squarely in the crosshairs. So I think we have to be clear-eyed about what has happened in the last seven years since the Pulse tragedy. And really before that, we've made incredible progress toward LGBTQ civil rights in the state of Florida. We made progress on gun violence prevention uh, up until 2019, 2020, 
the LGBTQ non-discrimination bill was the number one most co-sponsored piece of legislation in the state capitol in Tallahassee. That means it had majority support from Democrats and Republicans. It never made it to the floor because the leaders in both chambers decided that it wasn't a priority for them, but a majority of the lawmakers supported it. And that's because a majority of Floridians support non-discrimination protections for LGBTQ people. You look at 2018, after the Parkland shooting, the state legislature, which is majority Republican, passed a whole host of gun violence prevention measures, the first of their kind in decades, sent them to then Governor Rick Scott, who's also a Republican, who signed those into law. We have made incredible progress since I moved to the state of Florida, but what Ron DeSantis and his faction of right-wing extremists have done over the last four plus years is unravel all of that, cause chaos and catastrophic damage to marginalized communities, and quite honestly, uh, go against everything that a majority of Floridians actually want them to be solving. So I have a lot of hope for Florida's future. I think the first step is to get rid of the abysmal leadership that we've had over the last four plus years. Um, but the people of Florida know what's right. The people of Florida know who they care about, which is their neighbors, their family members, their friends. We just have to get back to a government that represents them. So uh, first of all, you know, I just want to congratulate you on, on the book, um, Brandon. Uh, and the show Queen and Me wants to thank you for the title, A Place for Us. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, when you know, when when Gays Against Guns was founded, obviously we were founded in the wake of of the Pulse tragedy. And, you know, that was something that, you know, we uh you know, highlighted continually and have over the years just about the, the sacredness of the space of a queer club, a queer bar, you know, a, a social environment like that, of the sacredness of it going back to Stonewall and, and, and decades and decades before. Um, and I want I would love for you to talk a little bit more about about you know, just that concept of a place for us, you being someone, you know, grew up in, I think, rural uh, or ex-urban, at least, Oregon, um, you know, which has its own very peculiar history as it relates to race, particularly, uh, and choosing Florida as your place. I, I grew up in southeastern Virginia. I chose New York as my as my place for us, right? Um, uh, Ty also grew up in Virginia and chose New York as his place for us after a, after a few a, steps. A 20 year pause <laughs> <laughs> in the military. Um, New York is not so, a bad place to pick. No, it's not. It's not. Uh, so yeah, I just love to hear you talk about, you know, talk about that idea of finding your place and, and also what, what this situation with, uh, Ron DeSantis is doing for other queers, especially trans folk, uh, other queers like you and, and trans folks who who chose Florida as their place. Yeah, the title was very intentional. We actually went through a grieving process on the title of the book because it was originally its working title for the first year and a half was Safe Space. Uh, mm -hmm. And I had become very emotionally attached to that. All the files on my computer were titled Safe Space. And then we got to the part where we started building the cover art and the publisher said, listen, politically speaking, we fear that safe space may alienate people, that they'll see it on a shelf, they'll feel some type of way about it, and they may never pick it up and read your story. Then we, you know, something sparked, I think it was maybe me or somebody else on the call that said, what about a place for us? It's similar to safe space. It gives you that same vibe. Um, 
but I actually like the word place as opposed to space because space feels more physical to me. And one of the primary themes of the book was that the place for us is, is the community we carve out for each other, that you can choose a place like Florida, you can choose a place like New York, you can end up in a rural town in Virginia. But if you create the kind of community that is loving and welcoming and inclusive, you have created a place for people to be themselves. Um, and in the book, I talk a lot about how the physical embodiment of those places, you know, bars like Pulse Nightclub, places like the Stonewall Inn, places where we can gather and be ourselves. I talk about being able to exhale for the first time as a queer Black person, that weight of the world coming off of your shoulders where you can hold hands with someone you have a crush on without looking over your shoulder first or wear your skinniest pair of jeans without being afraid of what someone might call you. Those places are not just trivial spots for us to have a drink with one another. They are refuges, they're hideouts, they're, they're carve outs in a world that threatens violence and discrimination against us every time we walk out the door. And that's why when you invade one of those places, like uh, Pulse Nightclub was invaded in June of 2016, it ripples across the entire community because everybody knows what it feels like to be safe in a place like Pulse Nightclub. And to your question about, you know, what has Ron DeSantis done to that feeling of safety and belonging for people, he's done everything in his power to try to shatter those spaces. He has waged war on a sense of safety, belonging, and inclusion that a lot of queer people came to Florida to find, right? I moved to Florida to work for Walt Disney World, and I thought, if there's anywhere in the world I can be very gay, it's probably Disney. And I was right about that. There's a huge LGBTQ community here in Central Florida. There's a huge one in South Beach, Miami. There's a huge one in Wilton Manors in Fort Lauderdale. We've created beautiful places in Florida where we can belong as our full selves. Governor DeSantis is waging war on those. He'd like to dismantle them, to tear them apart and to send queer people packing. But the truth is, to get back to the original theme of the book, that those places only matter because of the communities we create inside them. So try as he might, pull out every stop if he wants to. Governor DeSantis cannot sever the kind of bond we've created with each other. He can't sever the kind of communities that we have crafted in the state of Florida. And those communities, in my view, right now are the seat of the resistance against his extremism. That's so, that, that's wonderful to hear. And um, uh, you and I have one, one definite piece of commonality and that's that sort of straddling the, um, you know, the, you know, the realms of, of blackness and of queerness and both communities writ large uh, in different ways are under attack um, by, um, by the current governor. And, um, you know, I know here in New York, um, what I've seen in the activist communities, particularly the radical activist communities over the last several years has been a, an incredible joining of forces first with the resistance to Trump and just as time as time has gone on just in in reaction to just all of the the racism and homophobia and transphobia and anti-drag and all the things that have been um you know sort of coming up you know because you know one political party doesn't really have any platform or anything that they do right. for people they have to gin up a bunch of nonsense that will inflame people's anger um in, in so I'm curious about Florida um uh, New York City is a is a place where it's easier for lots of different folks to come together, even though we still have neighborhood segregation and things like that. But we have really strong community centers where lots of different people come from different backgrounds, different neighborhoods 
states. Um, uh, in your area in Florida or in Florida writ large, do you see that sort of that recognition of we're all in this together um, happening among black communities and, and queer and trans communities? Yeah, I do. And, and, you know, there's an irony to that, right? Because part of the DeSantis strategy, part of the right wing strategy in general is to divide and conquer. It's to pit communities against each other. It's to, you know, go into communities in South Florida and, and gin up hysteria and outrage about LGBTQ people inside Latino communities. There's a whole strategy here to divide us against one another in an effort to seize and control power in a, by the way, a country that is browner and queerer than ever before and not going backward, right? That is at, at the core, that's the, the struggle here, this fundamental struggle over, you know, over power. And the, the extremists like Ron DeSantis are telling people, if you don't like the way the country is, blame them. It's their fault, they're the problem. If you don't recognize the person working behind the counter at your local grocery store, blame them, it's their fault. And they do right. that because as you, Yes, yeah, they do that, you know, because as you said, um, they don't have any real solutions to these problems. They don't have any solutions to people's actual ails. They don't want to have a conversation about, you know, economic inequality that's leaving people ravaged. They don't want to talk about a broken social safety net that is leaving people to starve or go bankrupt from breaking an arm at some point in their lives. They don't want to talk about those things because they don't have actual solutions that wouldn't piss off their corporate overlords. And so they create these phony hysteria moments to try to divide us. So I say there's irony because the gift that DeSantis and the extremists may have given us in the process of trying to divide and conquer is a new sense of solidarity across community lines, across demographics. I have watched over the last couple of years as the governor has waged war on academic freedom, I've watched black and brown folks come together with the LGBTQ community to say, we should not be censoring history. We should not be whitewashing and propagandizing the American experience, whether that's telling people that there may be personal benefits to being enslaved back in the day, or whether it's telling uh, young people that having two moms or two dads is something to be ashamed of, and we shouldn't talk about that in a classroom. Both of those things are government censorship and the erasure of the American experience. And it is those assaults on our basic freedoms, I think, that has brought communities together. It's been beautiful to see the solidarity. Um, and again, I think there's irony in it because that solidarity is the thing extremists are most afraid of. They are most afraid of the day where working class white people, where black folks, where LGBTQ people, where immigrants are all on the same page because they understand that it's all our freedoms. It is our collective liberation that's at stake. Absolutely. That, and that's the history of this country, isn't it? You know, the one thing that that uh, they had that they didn't have in, in the 19th century when they were busy doing all of that during the run up to the Civil War and in the decades after Reconstruction was they didn't have the Internet. We have the Internet. Right. We have that end run around what these powers are, these walls that these powers are trying to put up, uh, separating our communities. That's why, you know, if I can. That's part of why I think we have to stay optimistic in this moment because there is a there's a um, 
a tendency or a pull to want to see their agenda as inevitable. It's very loud. It's very chaotic. It feels like it's everywhere all the time. And they win an election cycle here or, you know, they win a, a legislative battle there. And there's this temptation to feel like there's no stopping the creep of right wing extremism and authoritarianism. But the truth is this. The right wing is fighting so hard because they already lost the culture war. There is no yep. turning back the clock. There's no world where TikTok and Instagram and, you know, the artist formerly known as Twitter, where those things don't exist <laughs> anymore. That world is already here. The internet is here. Young people know that the world is bigger than they are, that it's diverse, that it's beautiful, and that our differences are what make us stronger. That terrifies the right wing. Uh, and I think their fight back, the, the intensity and ferocity with which they spew bigotry is an indication of just how much they know they have already lost the war for the culture in this country and beyond. You're listening to Radio Gag, the Gaze Against Gun Show. You can hear us on any podcast platform, and we want to hear from you. So subscribe, leave a message after you listen. After five years of podcasting, Radio Gag is developing and changing. Tell us what you love about Radio Gag and what really makes you gag about gun violence. In part two of our interview, Brandon explains how he finds hope in the people of Florida, even with anti-LGBTQ plus legislation, political hate speech, book bans, and now permitless carry in the state. I have to bring it back to gun violence the the change in florida when uh it overnight it's okay anyone and everyone could or is now armed could be um it is a disaster it is a catastrophe in the making and it's an intentional one keep in mind we just talked about you know this this strategy of trying to feel inevitable by the right wing this you know they create a storm that is so big and so chaotic that it feels like you can't address any of it you have to put out all these individual fires because they're all burning at once they run you ragged they they divide your resources that is the point so that they can make their minority of the population feel much bigger and more powerful than it actually is and part of that strategy involves fear and intimidation of the vast majority of people who just wanna go about their lives, who want the government to leave them alone, who wanna be able to go to a doctor and get the healthcare they need or the healthcare for their children that they need without being afraid of, of someone who might be waiting outside, who just wanna to go to the grocery store and buy produce without being afraid they're gonna come face to face with an AR-15. Uh, the, the right wing is using the, you know, I would say erosion of guardrails around gun safety uh, as a tactic to try to uh, intimidate and make people afraid who are part of the vast majority uh, in this country. And so you think about how these things all marry together, right? You have um, assaults on the policy front that are, you know, seeking to ban books and censor history that, you know, paint marginalized communities as a threat to society. And then you think about the rhetoric that's heaped on top of that. Remember, it was Governor DeSantis's office who first started trafficking writ large in the groomer hysteria and labeling LGBTQ people as a threat to children. Um, they're the same ones who peddled garbage about drag queens being there to indoctrinate someone when they're reading Redfish, Bluefish at the local library. So you have the policies that are happening. Then you have the rhetoric that's ginning up the base. All of that's fueling these politicians who go out and use it for fundraising fodder. They build campaign ads off of it. And then 
they turn around and say, and oh, by the way, if you have a problem, you can carry a gun without a permit. And you hear politicians then begin repeating ad nauseum things like, oh, we're a second amendment state, or we have our second amendment rights here. And all of it is very uh, coded, sometimes not so coded language uh, that essentially empowers people to use violent and deadly force against others that they're afraid of, they've been told to be afraid of, that they feel intimidated by. Uh, it is empowering people to solve everyday problems with violence, like all of a sudden a fight over a parking spot at a Publix is a shootout because people are carrying guns in their bags that they learned how to load on YouTube. All of it is setting us up, uh, setting us up for a crisis, a catastrophe. It's intentional in nature because it is designed to fuel the fear and hysteria necessary to impose these policies onto a populace that largely doesn't want them. Um, and it's us who have to pay the price, right? It's the people who go about their lives who have to pay the price. DeSantis will never be in a situation in the state of Florida, certainly so long as he's governor and probably afterward, where he has to deal with the consequences of people wandering around with guns that are unpermitted. People like Donald Trump will never have to deal with the consequences of unpermitted guns being held in someone's glove box or their purse because they're surrounded by security all the time. It's we, the people, who have to pay the price, who have to suffer the consequences when you have a populace that's hopped up on right-wing hysteria bait and packing guns they don't know how to use. Exactly. And then on top of that, you also have the stand your ground laws, which are weighted to defend the, the stereotypical white, cis, straight person who has, been, who has been indoctrinated into being afraid of anyone who's different uh, but the, you know, the black, queer, or trans person who defends himself against that person will most likely either die or be held at fault for any kind of confrontation between the two. Right. And you see people using stand your ground uh, frequently, knowing that that's what its intention is. Politicians will say, oh, you know, it's, stand your ground doesn't have racist implications at all. Stand your ground is just, you know, telling people they should be able to defend themselves. But it's interesting that every time we get into a situation where violence has been inflicted on someone uh, with racial implications, with anti-LGBTQ animus, any number of discriminatory reasons, that the perpetrator very often falls back on the stand your ground law because that's what they believe it is intended to do, is to give them impunity when they take violent action against someone simply because of their own animus. Um, so yeah, stand your ground just adds another layer of complexity onto the crisis that is being created, it feels a lot like a tinderbox in the state of Florida right now. How do you say, you said you do have some, you know, hope with, um, you know, the, the realignment of, you know, empathy for what's going on in, in all of our uh, collective groups, but how about the youth? What What is the, what is the energy and the feeling that you get from who they are now versus who the youth was, let's say even seven years ago when it came to who you were uh, and um, before Pulse. Uh. Yeah, uh, you know, earlier you said something that stuck out to me, um, which is that young people, millennials, Gen Z and beyond are natural born activists, that they're, they understand and they're in the fight. And for me, it's not so much that 
the generations collectively decided to be activists or that they have any different skills than any other generation, they've been forced into it because they're trying to survive. This is a survival mechanism to fight so hard because they understand the high stakes of everything. When you have generations that don't know any differently than bulletproof backpacks and hiding under their desks once a month to practice active shooter drills, of course they're gonna fight for a world where no one has to experience putting their friend into the ground long before they should be there. Um, you know, when you have young people whose, whose entire existence has been marked, as I mentioned, by economic inequality, by one housing market crash after another, by billionaires raking in all this money while everybody else struggles to pay their bills, of course, they're going to fight to challenge a system that has only exacerbated those problems. When you, know, when you have a generation of young people that's growing up watching people like Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump pour gasoline onto racist, homophobic, transphobic flames in this country, of course, their fight is going to, uh, to be fueled by wanting to push for a world that they know, that they recognize, that they see happens online every single day. So these young people are in survival mode. They are fighting for the future of their state, of their country. They're fighting for their own futures, for a world they know they deserve. And they know that world is possible and they're tired of being told to just wait for it. Just a couple more generations down the road, maybe we'll begin to address some of these problems. This is not an acceptable answer to these young people. So I'm really inspired because in Florida, we've seen uh, an incredible sense of resistance from young people, whether you're talking about the students who mobilized tens of thousands for don't say gay walkouts across the state to challenge anti-LGBTQ education policies, whether it's the young people who this legislative session were uh, setting up banned book libraries, uh, coordinating summer AP African American studies courses so they could learn the banned course, uh, whether it's the students who, you know, plan sit-ins at New College in Sarasota because it's facing a right-wing hostile takeover, um, or if you look back to 2018, the students who came out of Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School and really changed the way this country thinks about the relationship between young people and gun violence prevention, all of those things have been birthed from this desire to survive and see a world uh, that reflects their lived experiences, that treats them with dignity and respect and gives them an opportunity to thrive. So if you're looking for hope anywhere or optimism, let it be in young people because they truly are showing us the way. Thank, Thank you for you, all the work that you're doing uh, in Florida um, and uh, for highlighting the work that so many people in Florida are doing, so many young people in Florida are doing, because, you know, it, it's that old thing about the, the, you know, the greater the force that's seeking to oppress you, the greater, the greater the resistance will be. And all of those different areas where, where, where especially young people are using all of these creative means to directly confront the authoritarianism that you're seeing in that state, it just goes, you know, just goes to pr prove that, you know, that which doesn't kill you doesn't make you stronger. And yeah. the youth of Florida can have just consistently shown us that they can lead the way because they have no other choice but to fight back and use everything within them to do so. 100%. The resistance is not only surging in the state of Florida, I would argue that the resistance is inevitable in the state of Florida. Is there anything you'd wanna say like to our listeners, if you just had that opportunity, what would you wanna close out with? I will tell you a story that I think encapsulates the hope that I have. 
Um, six days after the shooting, we had a funeral service for Drew, my best friend. And to date, it's one of the hardest days of my life. I talk about it in the book. Um, I was a pallbearer that day. And as I was helping to push the casket down the aisle, I found myself holding onto the side of it really tightly because I didn't want to let go of my best friend until I'd found the right words to say goodbye to him. You never prepare for that moment to call your friend's parents and tell them that their child is never coming home. You never prepare for the moment where you know you, you go to have a drink and all of a sudden you're coming out and your friend um, is being zipped up into a body bag. That's something you can't prepare for. And so when I got to the front of the church, I looked down and I whispered the only words I knew to say, and that is that I would never stop fighting for a world that he would be proud of. That was the promise I made to him. I believe that world is still possible. I believe it's a world where people are free to be who they are, where they're free to love who they love, where they can read what they want to read, learn what they want to learn, where they have every opportunity to go out and make the best possible life for themselves. I believe that world is possible. I believe it's inevitable. I think young people are showing us the way, and I'm just excited to give them every resource possible, all the wisdom we have, and then clear the path so they can go out and rewrite a future. I think that not just my best friend would be proud of, but that all of us can be proud of. That's amazing. Thank you so much for that. Thank you. All right. Well, you've made my day so much better. I, I'm starting going, Ugh, I'm gonna have to talk about Florida, but uh, thank <laughs> you so much for keeping us all on our path as well. So lovely to meet you. Thank you again. Thank you. You too. To find out more about working with us, please go to gazeagainstguns.net or follow us at gazeagainstgunsny on Facebook and Instagram or gagnoguns on Twitter. Everybody is welcome at any and all gag events. Well, it is time to end our show. Thanks for listening, and we are back with a new episode next week. And don't forget, you can listen to our previous shows anytime on any major podcast platform. Our shows are featured on Brick free speech radio please subscribe to our podcast so you'll be notified when new shows drop we are here for you have a great and safe day we leave you with our fabulous singing quartet sing out louise Every green.